Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. With you, yeah, I'm on fire. Jesus Christ, save my soul. He sent the devil child. I've been running around, you've been gunning down every single mistake that I could make. You were there with me, my saving grace. People talk about true love, and I think they'd find. Peace if they just talk about you and me. Time would Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Devil Child, a song by Brown County singer-songwriter Noah Smith. Noah is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you finish listening to that song. Right now, let's throw another log on that fire, campers. And if you're not multitasking, grab some paper and a pen. Paula's going to play a bit of a game with tonight's mystery. You might want to take some notes. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me, as always, is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent the better part of 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal telling these kinds of stories. Hey, everybody. So a game tonight, huh? Yeah, we've got a real whodunit here. A century-old case in which a young man was tried and convicted, but might have been innocent. So I'm going to tell you the facts of the case, and then we're going to bring on our armchair detective. Tonight's special guest is not only distantly related to one of the major characters in this story, she spent years researching and writing two books on the case. And when she was done, she came up with an entirely different killer than the one that went to jail. Wow. So, kind of like Shawshank Redemption here, huh? Uh, yeah. Nice. So listen listen to these clues. Decide on who you think the killer is, and we're going to hold off to the very end and see if your guest matches our armchair detective. Sounds like fun. So we're going back a century with this one, eh? That's right. This story takes place in the year 1908 in the city of Wadsworth, Ohio. It's 5 o'clock the morning of October 9th and two men are traveling down a seldom-used road about two miles south of town, a route today known as Wall Road. Charles Razor is on a horse. John Schunk is walking. Razor trots right on by without noticing the body along the side of the road. But Schunk can't help but see it. He calls to Razor, who returns to his side. They have found Ora Etta Lee. She's 20 years old. She's lying on her back, legs stretched out straight, hands by her head. She's been shot three times in the head. There's no evidence of a struggle. Her suitcase is beside her. Around her right wrist is the strap of a handbag. Her left hand still clutches a handkerchief. A sack of candy lies in the dirt at her side. Investigators determined she was shot while sitting in a buggy and then fell or was thrown from it. The tracks of a steel-rimmed carriage drawn by a horse went west over her body and away from the crime scene. Aura was engaged. Her lover of three years was 25-year-old Daniel Guy Razor, who farmed as well as worked at the Ohio Injector Company. Most folks just called him Guy. A lot of folks in this area and in this story are related. The founding families here came from Pennsylvania together. Guy is a cousin of Charles Razor, one of the two men who found Aura. Guy is also a third cousin of Aura, our murdered girl. Now, Guy got word of Aura's death a couple of hours after she was discovered. Orrin Schaefer, a rural mail carrier, 
found Guy digging potatoes, and told him what happened. Guy raced home to get a marriage license he had picked up for he and Aura the day before, tucked it into his pocket, and then headed for the crime scene. He was still a mile from the scene when he was intercepted by Sheriff Hutchison and Marshal Bricker, who had been looking for him. Bricker said they headed in his direction because they were following fresh tracks of a horse that only wore three shoes. After a visit to Guy's house, Marshal Bricker discovered a carriage with muddy steel rims, suggesting recent use, and a horse missing a shoe. Now, Guy admitted to using his buggy the night before. He said he'd gone into town, but significantly there were some things missing here. There was no blood and no bullet holes in his carriage, something that seemed likely if Aura had been shot three times while inside. The side curtains of the carriage were folded neatly under the seat and covered with dust. They had not been used. This little fact is going to become important later. Now, Coroner Harry Hard determined that whoever shot Aura was at such close range, there were powder burns on her face from the weapon. Mm. He guessed the killer had used a thirty-two caliber revolver. The autopsy also revealed a very strong motive for Aura's death. She was four months pregnant. There was no debate about who the baby's father was. Aura boarded at the home of her cousin, George Keckler, and his wife, Verna. In an interview with Mrs. Keckler, Verna, she said Guy was the only man in Aura's life. He visited regularly, often staying until three or four in the morning. She wasn't the kind of girl to go with more than one fellow at the same time, Mrs. Keckler said. Marshal Bricker took Guy into custody for questioning, and on their way to the sheriff's office in Medina, he made a brief stop so Guy could tell his parents what happened. Marshal Bricker told reporters that Guy's parents weren't quick to defend him. Bricker said upon arrival, Guy's dad, Aaron Razor, said to him, If we only knew that you were not guilty, what an awful load would be lifted from us. Is it possible you have brought us to this guy? And Guy responded, Why, Father, you don't believe that I did it, do you? And the father replied, I didn't say that you did it, but why this arrest so soon? Anyway, Brecker said Guy carried with him a jackknife. And when they got back into the carriage and headed to Medina, he wondered if Guy had meant to use it on himself. He said during the drive to jail, he did everything he could to get Guy to confess. Guy cried throughout the journey. After he was locked up, he raved in his cell about losing his girl. On Saturday, Guy was in a bad state. It was supposed to be his wedding day. The previous Wednesday, he and Aura made plans to travel to Doylestown on this day to be wed before a Methodist minister there. In his cell, Guy cried and pleaded with no one in particular to stop the town from saying anything bad about Aura, since it was now public knowledge that she was pregnant. Fearing Guy might hurt himself, the jailers did not include utensils with his meals. Sheriff Hutchinson intended to use Guy's fragile state to drag a confession out of him. He told reporters he would sweat Guy into telling the truth, but Guy never confessed. He broke down and cried like a child, Hutchinson said, but he never confessed. The investigation turned up several witnesses that revealed little pieces of the greater puzzle. People who lived in the area reported hearing gunshots the night before. John Schonk, one of the two men who found Aura, lived only 300 yards from where she'd been found. He told police he heard two shots in the night, had been awakened by them, but just assumed they were hunters. Mrs. Lewis Rex, she lived on the north side of the road, also heard two shots during the night. She said she was alarmed enough to try and wake her husband, but he was tired and didn't respond. She confirmed the shots with two other people in her house her son, and her son's friend, who was spending the night. They said the shots happened after the family retired at 8 o'clock, though Mrs. Red thought it happened closer to 9 o'clock. And Mrs. Aaron Pfeiffer, who lived down the road at an intersection known as Custard Hook, reported she saw a buggy driving furiously down the road that night. 
She said it was running so fast the buggy almost tipped over as it rounded the corner in the direction of Wadsworth. But she couldn't identify the buggy or its occupants. Investigators were also trying to put together the pieces of Aura's life the past few days. Verna Keckler, the wife of the cousin where Aura boarded, told reporters about something strange the day before Aura was killed. She said Aura had dressed that Wednesday afternoon as if she were going away. About 5 p.m., Mrs. Keckler's baby was sleepy, so Mrs. Keckler took the infant upstairs and fell asleep with him. When she came back down about 7 that night, Aura was gone. The next day, Thursday, Aura told Mrs. Keckler that she had gone out with Guy, a friend of theirs named Harry Williams, and Harry's girlfriend, that traveled in Harry Williams' carriage to Barberton. But after Harry Williams heard Mrs. Keckler give that account, he denied having been with a couple or having seen Aura at all Wednesday. But plenty of people saw Aura on Thursday, her last day. Aura had been spending a lot of time at home recently, suffering from an illness. She had been employed at the Ohio Matchworks in Wadsworth, but hadn't been to work in two weeks. She said she had symptoms of typhoid fever. She had been despondent for days, but on Thursday, her despondency grew into desperation. Mrs. Keckler said Aura cried on and off all day Thursday, and when she asked why, Aura told her she wished she had the nerve to kill herself. And that's when, for the first time, she had admitted to Mrs. Keckler that she was pregnant. Also that afternoon, when Mrs. Keckler was thinking about possibly going to a dance on Saturday night, she asked Aura if she'd be available to babysit that night. And Aura responded she would watch the infant if she hadn't been shot by then. Mrs. Keckler said she didn't take these strange comments seriously, but she didn't know what they meant. Aura left the house at 5.55 p.m. carrying her suitcase. Mrs. Keckler said she remembered the time because she looked at the clock. Aura told Mrs. Keckler she intended to go to Rittman to see her grandparents. Mrs. Keckler said the last words before she left, I'll be back Saturday if nothing happens to me. Between 6 and 6.30 p.m., Aura was seen at the train depot. A ticket agent said she came in, suitcase in hand, and asked what the fare to Creston was. He said he knew Aura. They were cousins. And he said he joked with her, telling her it was 20 cents, but being her, he was going to charge her a quarter. When the ticket agent told her that the train was more than an hour late, she must have changed her mind. She decided she wouldn't need the train after all and left. So she left without being on the train. Exactly. Okay. Half an hour after that, Aura was spotted walking south on Main Street by Harry Hall and James Bauman, two youths who worked with her at the match factory. Hall said she recognized him, and they spoke. Neither of the boys remembered if she was carrying a suitcase. But a half hour after that, around 7.30 p.m., George Kintz said he saw a woman with a suitcase get into a buggy at Main and Berge Streets. He said the buggy came from the south, picked her up, then turned at the corner and headed back south. Authorities believe whoever was driving that buggy took Aura to that lonely spot south of town, possibly on the pretext that she was being taken to her grandparents in Rittman, since Wall Road was a direct route to their home. Investigators believe Guy had worked diligently to set up this alibi for himself before he carried out his plans. It bothered them that Guy had gotten the marriage license from a probate judge in Worcester at 4 o'clock Thursday afternoon. That was just four hours before Aura was killed. And that when he learned Aura was dead, he ran home to get the license before heading to the site where his fiance was. Yeah, I thought that was kind of odd. Yeah, was this to deflect interest in him? I mean, I'm the fiance eager to marry my sweetheart. Obviously... I mean, that's the first person you look at. You Absolutely. Right. They also thought it suspicious that Guy was in such a hurry to get back to Wadsworth after obtaining the license. Guy had told them that after leaving the probate court in Worcester, he had missed a train at Creston, so he walked three miles to Sterling in order to catch the train so he could get back to Wadsworth faster. 
At Sterling, he hopped a freight train that was headed for Wadsworth, and that's how he got home. Worth noting here that the train guy missed in Creston was the same tray Aura had inquired about at the Wadsworth train depot. Hmm. But the sheriff said it made no sense for Guy to be in a hurry. I mean, Guy had already said he didn't have any plans to see Aura that night and hadn't intended to show her the license that evening. The only rush that they could see was that Guy needed to be back in Wadsworth at a certain hour to carry out his plan. There were some serious timing problems, though. Authorities said they couldn't find anyone who saw Razor between 7 and 7.30. That was the half hour in which Aura reportedly got into that buggy and headed to her death. But he was seen in several public places after 8 p.m. Between 8.30 and 9 p.m., he ate pie at Anderton's restaurant, where he talked to Lee Anderton, the owner. He said Guy was in good spirits and talked about plans to marry Aura on Saturday. Shortly after that, he went to Uncle Bill's saloon. Owner William Robertson said it was the first time Guy had been in the saloon for at least two months. Robertson said Guy bought a glass of beer. Robertson told authorities a different story, though. He said Guy seemed moody and had nothing to say. I liked him very well, and he always had something to say to me. Robertson said, but Thursday night, he never said a word. After leaving Uncle Bill's, Guy went to Evan's saloon and then Wiseman's saloon, taking a glass of beer at each place. With the exception of William Robertson, everyone said he seemed normal and composed. But authorities said it looked to them like Guy was making a deliberate attempt to be seen. Yeah, I mean, if you keep going to these saloons, it seems like you're trying to build an alibi. Right, right. And as for acting cool and composed, they said, well, that's exactly what they would expect from someone with a kind of nerve that allowed him to shoot his girlfriend in the face, dump her body, and run over her with a buggy. By 10 o'clock, Guy was home, according to his sisters, Nina and Iva. Investigators weren't the only ones who saw Guy as their one and only suspect, or his family thought he was guilty, too. I don't know why he did it, said Ora's dad, Edward Lee but I believe Razor killed my daughter. She was coming home. She was on her way to my house. Guy had convinced the sheriff to take him to see Aura's body, which had been laid out at the home of her grandparents, but Edward Lee refused to let him in. I thought he had seen her enough the night before, a tearful father told a reporter. On Monday, the day after her funeral, a reporter talked to Aura's grandfather, William Lee, He was found gathering apples in an orchard outside his home in Rittman, just across the Wayne County line. It was the home where Oralee had been born and the home where she had been raised after her mom died when she was an infant. Guy Razor is a guilty wretch and murdered my girl, her grandpa said, for she was my girl. Mother and I brought her up from childhood. If Razor escapes the law's vengeance, a great injustice will have been done. I gotta say, I wonder if people really talk like that or if the reporter was taking some liberty. Oh, I'm sure the reporter was <laughs> taking some liberty there. Well, the grandfather said Guy was a hard drinker, but he had talked to Aura about it and she assured him it had stopped. He also said he heard that there was some stress over the fact that Guy's parents didn't want him seeing Aura. Marshall Bricker said he understood the same thing, that Guy's family objected to his dating Aura and that only added to his motivation to get rid of her. Do they say why? We are going to ask our armchair detective that, because she knows a lot about these familial relationships. Sounds good. It's going to be good. Well, within a week of Ora's death, Guy Razor was charged with the murder of his sweetheart. He pled not guilty. During the trial that followed, the prosecutor argued that Guy's offer to Mara Ora was a sham, that he never took Ora out in public, never took her to his parents' house, and never spoke to anyone about his intention to marry her until a few hours before his death, when he deliberately mentioned it to that restaurant owner. Ora's father, Edward Lee, testified the couple had set several dates for the wedding, August 12, September 16, even October 7, the day before she was killed, but he was never given an explanation of why they kept delaying it. 
and there was a surprise witness and some shocking testimony. The day of the murder, a clerk in Sterling, a town where Guy had admitted he'd been the afternoon of the day that Aura was murdered, said a man walked into his store and purchased a thirty-two caliber revolver. He showed the stranger two guns, and the man took one and asked for a box of cartridges. The clerk, however, could not identify Razor as the man who bought that gun. And no one expected the testimony of Grandma Lee, the woman who raised Dora. Her son assisted her to the witness chair and stood beside her as she wept and wailed about Ora's murder. Grandma was a frail old woman who surprised everyone when she stood and pointed her crooked finger at Guy Razor and shouted, He killed her! It was almost necessary for the judge to clear the courtroom because of the outraged spectators. Dozens of witnesses tested about things they saw and heard, and through it all, the media created this love-hate relationship with Guy Razor. Sometimes sensational headlines and stories made it sound like there was little doubt Guy had done the deed. It was a slam dunk. But on other days, the media would outline everything that was wrong with the case. It was all circumstantial. They would ask questions that the prosecutor couldn't answer. It's almost like the jury wasn't sure either, because in March of 1909, they found Guy guilty, but only of manslaughter. He was given 20 years of hard labor at the Ohio Penitentiary, but was paroled after eight years. I can't believe manslaughter is on the table at that point. Well, again, maybe our armchair detective will know why, but it, it is interesting how they... Sometimes a prosecutor will offer something less because they know there's no way they're going to convince a jury of the higher charge, yeah. but they're hoping they'll get something out of it. Right. And that really seems to be the case. Well, when uh, Guy was released from prison eight years later, he returned to Wadsworth. He got married. He got a job at a local lumberyard, and the rest of his life was uneventful. He died in 1973. Oh, he's uh, no other crimes in his life after that. Not that I'm aware of. If I had to take a guess, though, I'm thinking it's Guy. You think it's Guy? It has to be. I mean, he's going around to those saloons like that and just seems... But if these people heard heard those gunshots, say they happened around 9 o'clock, and you've got Guy covered from 8 to 10... Yeah. I think they got their time wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is probably a good time to bring in our armchair detective. Let's get the rest of the story. Armchair Detective tonight is Linda Thompson Bish. Uh, Linda is distantly related to Guy Razor. Hi, Linda, by the way. <laughs> Hello. And well, how are you related to Guy? A, a distant cousin? No, it's actually my husband. Oh, your husband's doing, cousin. Yes, I was doing my husband's family tree and I came across the murder. And you ended up writing two books on this. You wrote Who Killed Ora Lee, A Story of Love, Mm -hmm. Lust, and Tragedy in Wadsworth, Ohio, which was sort of a um, kind of an objective look at at the actual story and and the facts of the case. And then you followed it up with a book called Reasonable Minds, A Conclusion, where you went into more of a forensic study of the evidence and came up with an alternative theory uh, on who killed Aura. So tell me, what inspired you to, to research this case and do these books? When I found this, all I had was a photograph, and all of the men outside the old courthouse in Medina on the county square were dressed in what I call costumes, but they weren't. It was the period clothing. So I went to a friend, and I said, what year was this photograph taken? And he looked at it, and he said, oh, 1910. And I said, oh, okay. So I went back to the law library and the courthouse, and I went through all of the cases from 19, oh, 1907 to 1910, and that's when I found the murder. Very intrigued when I found out that this was actually an ancestor of my husband. I started talking to his family members who were living, 
and they were not allowed to talk about this ever. No one will ever know. We are not allowed to talk about this. So I got to the newspapers. I went through court files. I went through um, as many records as I could find, high school records, uh, city records, directories, found out the movement of people, and I learned an awful lot. Now, <laughs> I you're, started putting it together. People told you they're not allowed to talk to it. This was a century after it happened. Exactly. Why do you think people still felt so strong about it? Uh, let me give you a brief background, which just inspired me no end. And I, I don't talk about this in the first book because I honestly didn't think it was relevant until after I had put the book together. However, back in uh, a year before the murder, Guy's uncle or cousin, I don't know, uh, it was his uncle, had been sued by his daughter's husband for his land and his chattel because Frederick Razor's daughter had died. And now her husband believed that their children were the owners of it by inheritance. And he produced documents that were supposedly created by Frederick Razor, which were not. But the court allowed them. You know, it was just, it, it, it was just a scene of, of, oh, this poor man. He was homeless. He was penniless. And he had nowhere to go now because everything was gone. It went to Jacob Donner, who was Aura Lee's cousin. So, so it there, was one the, against another. The family dynamics obviously are, are playing a really huge role in this. And you, oh, yes. I think you told me that like 90% of the people who were witnesses in the trial were actually actually related to Guy or Aura at, at some level because at that well, point, you know, the town sure. was... yeah. There were only 1,700 people in the town at the time. Wow. And a lot um, of the settlers came over together from Pennsylvania. So yes, they, they did. intermarried. They and Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. So basically, the witnesses for Guy were, were family members because those were the people who knew him, spent time with him, and went places with him. So that was his defense. Um, the witnesses for the prosecution were all outside people. They were people like the clerk in Sterling, the, um, the, the railroad man. These were all people who testified about Guy in a negative way. They were all later found to have been compensated by Grandma and Grandpa. Oh, really? Oh, there's yeah. proof of that? Yeah, well... Did it come out in the trial? As good... No, no, because it wasn't until several years after the trial. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Let's Mm -hmm. go through some of the evidence that was in question. Sure. The horse tracks, there was, you know, I know you had an issue with the way they described the horse hooves or the fact that the horse that that had run over Aura uh, had been Mm -hmm. missing one or more shoes. Tell Mm -hmm. me what the dilemma was there. The, The original discovery which brings into play once again, it was a razor who saw the tracks first. But, but you have to remember that these were, these were farmers and hunters and trackers, and they knew what they saw in the dirt. You know, these, these weren't people who just made things up and guessed. So when they, uh, when, when they were walking down the road and they came across the body and they could see the tracks in the, uh, in the, uh, in the damp dirt, They saw that there were three shoes on the horse and that the right front shoe was off. That's what the evidence showed that morning before the investigators showed up. And the people who saw that were all people who lived close by, who came to the scene. They all walked around. They disturbed everything. It was all messed up. There was no preservation of the crime scene for a real look at this. So they had to go by what they saw. So this was a story between all of the witnesses that saw this up until the time that uh, Marshall Bricker arrived. Later, when they went to the Razor house to investigate Guy's horse and buggy, Guy's horse had three shoes off. 
and the left front on. So the exact opposite of what they the, found. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that was the evidence. So Marshall Bricker changes his diagrams. He changes it to be his statement of what it is, changes to be what the evidence shows Guy's horse is, rather than what the evidence was at the scene. So what what does Marshall Bricker have at stake here? It sounds like you kind of suspect he's not on Guy's side. I mean, why does he have a dog in this race at all? Well, Marshall Bricker was not a nice man. He came to Wadsworth, oh, I don't know, mid-1800s. He was befriended immediately by a man named Henry Lee. Henry Lee had a big farm. Marshall Bricker and his wife worked on the farm there. Henry Lee was the uncle of Orly. Okay. So, so they Henry were very Lee, close with the Lee side. Oh, Marshall Bricker owes the Lee family everything good that ever happened to him. Uh, um, he, he, just, he just owed them. Uh, oh. Marshall Bricker was the witness on every one of those illegal documents. Two years after the trial, Marshall Bricker was in a brand new house. In um, in Wadsworth. From the money he made on? Paid for. Paid mm-hmm. for. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. right. And, All right and people heard him openly tell Grandma Lee that uh, he would do everything he could to put him to death. Wow. Okay. Yes. Okay. All so right. there we are. We mentioned in the story that when Guy's buggy was found, they also found the side curtains that were neatly... It rolled up, packed away, covered in dust. Why was that significant? At the time of the buggy leaving the scene, Mrs. Pfeiffer, who lived on the corner of uh, Pfeiffer Road and Wall Road, which was not too far from where the murder took place. So the buggy, the buggy's going down the road, lickety-split, and, and takes a turn to the right to go back up into Wadsworth, and Mrs. Pfeiffer totally saw the buggy. It was a plain black buggy with side curtains on. You could not see the driver. You could just see the enclosed buggy. And that buggy turned, she said, it almost tipped over as it went around the corner and went up to Wadsworth. So there you are. There's a, there's a, a witness to seeing the buggy leave the scene of the crime, and it had side curtains And on. it had the side curtain. Now, I know you also took issue with... Bricker telling reporters that Guy's dad, Aaron, hinted at skepticism at his own son's innocence when they stopped to see him on the way to jail the day of Aura's death. That, that's the, the part where the dad supposedly said, oh, son, if only we knew that you were not guilty, you know, is it possible you've brought us to this? You don't think that conversation happened that way, do you? No, I don't. I don't think it took place at all. Because I don't think his family saw him until after he had been in jail for a while. So that was just another example of Bricker trying to keep suspicion Mm -hmm. on Guy. And and the newspapers. I believe the media was was working on this in that way. I think they made up some things for the effect of drama. Yeah. And that's part of it, I think. We talked a little bit about how, you know, when I was going through the newspaper stories, the facts changed from day to day, and it was very (laughs) hard to figure out what was real or what was not. Mm -hmm. Well, you clearly, by the end of your second book, thought Guy was innocent. I I thought it into my first 30 pages. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Actually, that's why you wrote the second book, because you thought he was innocent. So let's reveal what you think happened that day. Why don't you just take us through this story and hit the highlights and tell us what you think happened that day. Okay. I think that because Verna and Charles Keckler were under such pressure from the grandparents to keep their granddaughter safe and pure, that to keep Orly from going to her grandparents that night and tell them she was pregnant and to have them make 
Guy Razor marry her, which was her intention. That's where she was going. She was going to make her grandparents, you know, just tell him he had to marry her and make sure that they did. I think Verna Keckler intercepted her. I believe she was the one responsible for it. Picked her up on. (laughs) (laughs) So you think Verna and Aura, they're having a a discussion that afternoon. Aura reveals that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. She leaves the house. You think Mm -hmm. Verna goes after her, finds her Mm -hmm. at that corner while she's in her buggy. Mm -hmm. Does Verna say, hop in, I'll take you down to see your grandparents? I believe so. And then I they, believe she, she, yes, I believe she talks her into getting into the buggy on the pretext that we'll take you to your grand, I'll take you to your grandparents because the road that they were on, which is the road that they would have taken to go to the grandparents. So they get out there. Verna has already decided, obviously she's got a gun with her. Premeditation. Sure. And she's mm-hmm. already decided when I get to this road where I think I'm going to have some privacy, I'm going to put an end to this. Mm-hmm. shoots her. Did anybody suspect Verna at all enough that they looked at her carriage and her horses? I don't believe so. I found absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Wow. And you think the pressure was that great? I mean, to murder your cousin, your husband's cousin over fear that you've disappointed his grandparents. That's, I believe so. You think it was that strong? It, it was absolutely that strong. Wow. And, and one of the reasons that has me so convinced of that is the fact that Verna's life changed drastically. Verna had to walk away from her family. She had to move to another town. She had no contact with them. Um, wow, that all happened just, after the trial? After the trial. So you after were thinking the, the family trial. knew that she did that? Yeah, did the family know I that? Think, I think Grandma found out. This was, like, this was like maybe two years, maybe a year, two years after Guy had gone to prison. And then, uh, and then suddenly, and the only way I can tell that is by the census records. You know, it's like where she was, when. But I believe it was in 1910, she was not living. That's two years after. She was not living in Wadsworth. She was living in um, Akron, I believe. Wow. And she floated around Summit County from time to time. She never, she never had, she never came back to Wadsworth until after Grandma Lee died. Did her and her husband stay together? Yes, they never divorced. Okay. Yeah. Wow. This is some great but, stuff. When they make a movie uh, from your books, are we a lot on set? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. But uh, Discovery Channel had contacted me at one point about this. And they, they wanted to do, a you know, like a half hour, hour thing on it or whatever. But they wanted to come in and they wanted to make Orly as if she were the town prostitute. And, and, what? You know, they wanted to change some of the facts just. You know, it wasn't interesting enough. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I find this very interesting. <laughs> I don't think you have to change the fact. I'll but, tell you uh, what's really telling to me is that Guy serves, what was it, eight years for this? Uh-huh. And he comes back to town, and he gets a job, and he gets married, mm-hmm. and he lives mm-hmm. and dies right there where all of this happened. And I'm thinking, if you were guilty of that, and if everybody thought that you cold-bloodedly shot your pregnant fiancé in the face three times, there's no way you would go back there and be accepted. And yet... Unless the whole town knew the truth. Exactly. Unless it was... You're right. Unless the town knew the truth and and you weren't... Well, the the town was so divided. I mean, they had things like... um, the barber had to change his days. Like only the people for Guy Razor were in on Tuesday. Only the people for <laughs> against Guy Razor were there on Thursday. You know. Oh, that's I mean, hilarious. They would, they, would have, they would have fist fights in and outside the courthouse or outside the barber shop and on the streets and in the bars. And it was an extremely emotional event. Did you but, have any 
evidence or sources that talked at all about the relationship between Aura and Verna. I mean, whether they liked each other or not, or whether they fought a lot, or... Uh, only, uh, the only information was was the fact that Verna felt she was very close to um, to Aura, and they were sisters. But the morning that the press showed up at Verna's house, she spilled her guts. She was the first one to let them know what a floozy Aura Lee was. She was the one who told them that she was the one that she would find with her clothes up under her chin every morning on the settee. Ooh. You know, I mean, she was she was the first one to roll her under the bus. Wow. Yeah. Almost wow. like she was angry at her for having to kill her. I don't know if it was that or if it was maybe just to deflect the attention. Yeah, probably. Or, yeah. or something like that. Maybe a mix but, of everything in there. But the newspapers, I know you did a lot of newspaper research. Did you see did you see all the photographs in there of Verna? Did you see the hand drawings in there of Verna? She was a beautiful woman. She dressed in high fashion. Her nails were done all the time, which takes us back to that buggy ride. There were seven fingernail marks in Aura's wrists. Ooh. Oh, Those seven wow. fingernail marks had to have been made by somebody grabbing her by the wrist and shaking her and screaming at her, you can't do this. You have to come back home. You can't do this. Wow. <laughs> and farmers and laborers probably don't have a whole lot of fingernails. I mean, oh, no. men right. who work with their hands. Right. Tend not to be able to keep long nails. Yeah. So, right. Wow. Yeah. You know, yeah, though, no. it, I find it really interesting, though, because a gun is not a woman's weapon. No, and, it's not. Usually it's poison, right? Yeah. And for mm. Verna to be able to shoot somebody in the face at close range three times. I don't there had to be some anger there. Real, real anger. Yeah. Or fear. Yeah, Anger or fear. Well, what's going to happen to you? <clears throat> Look at it like this. The Kecklers had an 18-year-old child, or 18-year-old, 18-month-old child, and I'm sure he went for a lot of buggy rides. Therefore, to protect him from the weather, it was October, protect him from the weather, the side curtains were on. George was a National Guard fellow. He had militia meetings all the time. They had weapons in the house. He had a gun. So when you talk about motive, opportunity, means, whatever... Uh, Verna fits it. Verna has the motive to keep her away from uh, away from the grandparents. Opportunity. She got her into the buggy. And means, yep, she probably used one of George's guns. Wow. Well, I think you so, wrapped it up. Oh, well, I, Steve, did you see that coming? No, no. I, I you, had no idea. You weren't leaning toward Verna? I was not. No. no. I Do you want that. one more? Do you want one more thing? Absolutely. It was a big thing. Give it to us. <laughs> Guy Razor was a studly little man around town. Now, the Razors weren't very hot, tall in stature, but he was a pretty spiffy, spicy young man. And you know how in the 60s, the fellas were known by the car that they drove. Right. Guy Razor was known by the buggy he rode in. Oh, man. His buggy was super dupered and it had bright red running gear and it was a buggy that everybody knew was guy razor so it would have been pretty obvious to see yep all these eyewitnesses it, who saw yep, that buggy yep. taking aura away from that street corner or the buggy racing yep. from the crime scene uh-huh they would have they would have known it was his absolutely that was not part of any additional discussion with this it was totally ignored but that's what it was. And the reason that we know about that is because Guy's buggy maker, his name, his last name was Kintz, K-I-N-T-Z. And he was one of the witnesses on Main Street that saw Orly get into a plain box buggy with side curtains on. He knew she didn't get into Guy Razor's buggy. And Guy would never have a plain buggy. No. <laughs> no. 
Wow. He, he was into the it's, muscle buggies. Muscle buggies. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, muscle buggies. <laughs> so, well, Linda, hey, your two books, are they still available on uh, for purchase sure. on Amazon? Sure, you can get them on Amazon, or uh, I have a message phone line where if somebody wants to buy the books, they can just give me a call, leave a message with their name and number, and I'll get back to them and send them a copy. Super. Let's have that number. Okay, it's 330 330- Seven two three, eight seven one one, and it just takes messages. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, yep. Linda. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a, a great case. I'm glad uh, it was your daughter who brought it to our attention. So thank oh, her for well. that. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you these uh, these people are like part of our family. So you know. that's wonderful. But well, they they're all our friends. Well, thank, thank you. you for allowing me this opportunity. It's really great. It's a wonderful story, and I'll talk about it anytime. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. Visit our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, news clippings, links, and more on this and every episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and family. The best way to support us is to help spread the word. Now, Paula, why don't you tell us a little bit more about tonight's featured musical artist? That would be Noah Smith. Noah is from Brown County, born and raised in Mount Oreb. You can follow this talented country artist on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And be sure to check out his website, noahsmithmusic.com. If you want to see him in person, you'll find him June 6th in Nashville at B.B. King's during the CMA Fest. And you know what? If you're not in Nashville, then, well, what a great excuse to go. Great town. You'll have a lot of fun. Anyway, Noah has some new music coming out this summer and a live record that was recorded on New Year's Eve. And here's a cool thing. Noah has his own podcast. It's called The Long Cut. I listened to a few episodes during my morning run. And it is a great behind-the-scenes look at life in the industry. So find it and subscribe. Well, let's have another listen to that song, Devil Child. Turn up the volume, settle back, and we'll see you here next week for a brand new Ohio Mystery. Try to beat the last time
They say there's nothing like the first time I say let's try to be the last time You can take my hand if you want to You can leave this world on your own Either way, I'll be waiting for you I'll be here forever be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loops serial killers of color a true crime podcast Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 